I'd like to say a few words tonight on how we can eat our way to heaven. A few words on eating meditation. Looked at from a negative point of view. A balanced use of food as energy seems difficult to come by. Whereas the correct use of many kinds of energy is scarce right now on the planet. And as a result, there's a lot of suffering sexual energy, the energy of money. food. And if we're going to live in the world, we have to learn how to use these energies. We have to learn how to orchestrate them properly. It's not outside of Dharma practice. It is Dharma practice. Because when we create a, a vision of practice that is fragmented and excludes these energies, perhaps unless we live a life as monks or nuns, it has a way of taking its revenge no matter how deep our sitting goes, no matter how many retreats we go to. We're in the midst of this energy all day long. We have to learn how to use it. That's looked at negatively. A lot of suffering is caused, a lot of disease. Uh, We have a very difficult time with these energies. Food is certainly one of them. And there's also a positive side. Um, Not only the enjoyment of food, and its contribution to a, a body that's healthy and has enough energy to do whatever it is that you value. But it can even have a, a dimension in Dharma, a very deep one. Actually, uh, supposedly, I don't know this myself, but I read it somewhere, in Sri Lanka during medieval times, there was a monastery that was famous because they emphasized the eating meditation that I'll go through in a few moments. It was really emphasized and featured. And as a result, many people attained enlightenment eating. So listen, listen up. Me too, I don't know what's going to come out of this mouth. Some of what I'd uh, like to get into regarding the eating meditation has to do with a very basic issue to our practice, and that is, if there's awareness, it's possible to have enjoyment in life without attachment. I think I'll be saying this a number of ways. If If there is awareness, it's possible to have enjoyment without attachment. A lot of the difficulties in the, in, the, in the realm of eating have, of course, to do with attachment. 
Let me start by the just going through the meditation itself. Some of you are new to it. Some of you have heard it perhaps many times. I'd like to go through it very slowly, painstakingly, and explore some of the ramifications, what's possible. Since we're in a unique situation, we have almost two weeks, some of us, a number of meals, to really begin to use those periods of time in a way that expresses everything else that we're attempting to do here. Okay, so the meditation itself might begin when you get to the dining hall. Actually, it might begin even before the dining hall. In other words, as soon as we begin to move in that direction, we're moving towards food. It's coming in touch with ourselves, with the mind and with the body. What are we bringing to the meal? Often there's interest. Where is that interest coming from? Everything that I'm saying now is not something to imagine, but that's done as we, the next meal, the next time the, the bell rings and we go to, to eat, uh, really do it. It's just, it's just an extension of what we've been doing for a number of days now. That is bringing great care and attention to everything that we do here. So the eating meditation begins before we've even begun to eat. We make our way into the dining room. Even as we're online, the mind begins to work. A lot can be learned from, from that. Uh, we see certain foods, some of the foods we like, some of the foods we don't like, some of the foods we don't even recognize. If you've not been part of New Age culture, you don't know what half of it is. You have to figure it out or ask someone. But now it's getting better. There are signs, I've noticed. We didn't used to have that, which tell you that's tofu. Does everyone know what tofu is? The millennia has arrived. So we move through the line and we begin to see these substances, sometimes fluids, presented in containers waiting for us with different colors and temperatures. And you could say that food is uh, these substances plus all the ideas and thoughts that are thrown together around these substances, what, the, what they are. Or is it the substance plus a whole bunch of thoughts as to what the substance is for each one of us. Positive, negative, neither. And we make a choice right away how much of this or that to put into our bowls or cups or dishes. With sensitivity, the learning begins right there. I've noticed uh, very often it's less so with me now because I noticed that I would waste food I would take much more than I use. Now, I think many, if not all of us, have been brought up to not waste food, about starving people in India, etc. I don't mean to mock that. I think it's a very good motive to, be, to take what you need and, rather, and not to waste. But there's another dimension which has to do with our own starving. And then as we begin, to, we take a portion. Why? How do we settle on a certain amount? Is it just random, mechanical? Begin to, to notice that. And what I found with this, applying this kind of care, uh, I've become much more accurate in really 
coming very close to what I need. And as we move through this meditation, you'll see how it can prepare you to be able to do that. Okay, you have your food and you make your way back to the table. And what I would suggest before you actually begin to eat is that you pause. If you express your gratitude in some way or have some words that you use, that's fine. But in addition to that, what I would suggest is just a very innocent, simple attention to the whole body and the mind. You haven't even begun to eat yet. Just pause and see where you are. Perhaps there's what we call hunger. And if so, where is it? Can you locate it in some part of the body? If not, it suggests that it's a good possibility that it's psychological hunger, not physical. What are you bringing to the food? What do you want from the food? And these are things that come up. It's not that you have to do a whole lot of thinking. I have to use these words to convey the richness of what's possible once you bring attention to the actual eating. But it's not an exercise in thinking, but rather an exercise in attending, in paying attention. And then these stirrings come up in terms of thoughts and urges, bodily postures. Is the eating meant to compensate for the fact that we are very restless on the cushion all day? Is it a reward for being so good, you know, for coming here and sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking? Lunch. (laughs) Notice the, the color, the shapes, the aroma, and hear what the mind puts together around what's in front of you. See, we have time to do this. Clearly, this is not practical for most of us when we leave here. It can be done from time to time, even uh, at home. So then we begin to eat. Awareness at this point could move with the movement of the body as you experience your arm reaching for the food and bringing the food up, placing it in your mouth. But even before that, there's a lot that can be learned in terms of facial expression, bodily posture. If you watch, sometimes people, we have a residue from primitive times, a kind of uh, uh, the devouring mind going into action, even though it's a very delicate little dish and these nice utensils. And it's as if you you just uh, killed a wild animal and are about to devour it. And some of it shows up in the, in the musculature, in the neck, in the shoulders. We still have it, even though it's not appropriate. And then there's an intensity of the movement, experiencing all that, bringing the food into the mouth, and then the fun begins. Putting the food in the mouth and then watch what happens. Start chewing and watch what happens. That means not only do you put the food in your mouth, you have to put awareness into the mouth and begin to chew. People report all kinds of different experiences about this. 
so some of what I'm saying is not my own experience. When people look carefully, some people discover that the zest with which they go out a meal has very little to do with taste, the taste of the food. It may have to do with just the grinding, just a certain amount of aggression that's expressed and relieves the person. Because when questioned, they don't even know what the food tasted like. Or when they pay close attention, they see that the taste is not very relevant, but there's something in the grinding that's very fulfilling and satisfying. Some people is immense, tremendous intensity in the chewing. Other people is very delicate, savoring the taste. Awareness is there, and what you find is what you find, because it means different things to diff- different people. And as the mind becomes quieter and quieter, it starts to hear the intention behind almost everything we're doing all day long. You, know, you open the door for someone, and you, you can experience the intention of why you did it. Think of yourself as a nice person, or whatever. And so this subtlety is operating, and it, some of it comes up and makes itself evident to us as we eat. And so we begin to chew, and we, there's texture and taste. And the mind goes into operation. And so the eating meditation really requires close attention to the physical act of eating as well as the play of mind around the eating. And as you do that, you'll see that they're two very different things. One are these sensations that, are, that happen as we chew, and the other are stories made up by the mind about what's happening. Two examples that people have reported. One that's dated now, it's from a previous generation, and another one that's contemporary. One person reported eating a certain kind of French cheese for 10 years and then did this eating meditation a few times and they discovered that they really didn't like that cheese. So it was only natural to explore that. Well, why not? And at first it was puzzling. They didn't even know that they didn't particularly like the cheese, even though they were munching on it for 10 years. I mean, not uninterruptedly, you know, but from time to time. And it turned out that at that time period, things French were in vogue. I've used the right word. And so French cheese was something that had a sort of, it was a conceptual, a concept that was being eaten. Junior year abroad in France, French art, French philosophy, croissants. Now it's all ordinary, but at one point that was special. Everyone eats croissants now, even if you don't know how to pronounce them, like me. But at one point, there were only very specialized, special kinds of people ate them and ate French cheese and knew the names of them, etc. And this person saw that and it was quite revealing. More recently, uh, as you can imagine, it had to do with certain foods that are good for you and that are often uh, so-called natural foods. I wonder how many people are eating tofu, you know, not liking it all the while. Or brown rice and, you know, really resenting it while they're chewing 40 times or 100 times. So the mind has a mind of its own and it's very powerful and yet there's taste. Now, that kind of learning 
can be generalized to something that's invaluable in terms of the re-education of the body. And in a few moments, I'd like to place that uh, interest in the body in, in, in terms of Vipassana meditation practice. Just where does it fit in? Where was I? What? We did that. Tofu. Where were you? <laughs> what? That's the problem of being in the now. You often... Yeah. A lot of what... Uh, the, a lot of the sensitivity of the body has been atrophied. Uh, and it's been atrophied largely because the natural sensations that come up in the body are overwhelmed and overpowered by the mind, by concepts. So the poor body is throwing off sensations all the time. At least it starts off that way. But after a while, these sensations are not allowed to fully run their course, fully express themselves. They're squelched or suffocated by concepts, a whole network of concepts that impose upon the body what it is that we want to happen what we want to like, what we want to enjoy, what we think we should enjoy, etc. And one way to um, begin to re-educate the body is to begin to hear the actual sensations. Uh, in this case, uh, speaking mainly about food, just the, the natural messages that the body throws off. Now here's where it now starts to become even more interesting from the point of view of Dharma and, and meditative life. One of the earliest uh, the, uh, meanings of insight, one of the first meanings of insight for people to become sensitive to, is insight into cause and effect in, in Buddhist teaching. And much of the time when you read that, when you read uh, understanding cause and effect, it has to do with the kinds of actions that we perform and the kinds of karma that that generates and the kinds of rebirth that come as a result. But the cause and effect principle is central to dharmic teaching and it also includes moment-to-moment cause and effect, putting your hand in fire and getting burned. And I use that example because that's the paradigm, or it can be the paradigm, for using inquiry, which is a very strong, very important in Vipassana meditation. And if we do, the inquiry blossoms into understanding and understanding is powerful. Understanding is what frees us. Now, it's not merely intellectual. I'm not using in that way. It's really standing under it, grasping at a deep level what is happening. So the cause and effect principle applied to food has to do with careful attending to sensations in the body. These sensations are give off signals. The body is quite intelligent. There's a wisdom in the body. Much of it is damaged for most of us, but it's still there. These signals have to do with disruptive and harmonious uh, impact. In other words, we eat food, everything that we do has an impact. You know, it's most dramatic, let's say, if you have a few drinks, you can see that consciousness changes. If you have a few, uh, let's say, whiskey or, some, or a beer, a few, you can see the mind starts to change. Really, everything that we put into the body ch- affects the mood and the level of energy. Everything at that moment. It may be too subtle for us to discern, but it's, that's what's happening. It's a very sensitive instrument. And so as you 
begin as while you're eating. Now we're still at the mouth, just chewing, chewing away here. We haven't even gotten to the second bite. And there are already the the, mind, the the body may start to be putting out signals in terms of what effect this is having, whether it's having a harmonious or a disruptive effect on the life of the body from the body's point of view, not from the mind's point of view necessarily. And you can experience these signals in terms of heaviness, pressure, movement, temperature. If you have to put it into, into words, the feeling of um, satisfaction or dissatisfaction. Now, these kinds of sensations, which are telling you what the body is experiencing, when attended to, can lead to correcting what we're doing. Now, you can get it from a book, perhaps, too. Perhaps there are now increasingly sophisticated books on natural healing and diet, which could tell you the whole story. But that's just a menu. What really transforms us is this moment-to-moment attention and learning that comes up. Seeing that when we do this, we get that. It's, it is the, the model of fire. You touch it, you get burned. So you pull your hand away, you try not to touch it again. But many things don't have on their face the sign, I'm fire and I burn. In fact, they're kind of gift-wrapped. They look as if they're wonderful, and it turns out they're not. They harm us. And so how can we find that out? Through careful, patient, sensitive, alert attention. That same old thing that we've been doing day in and day out from early morning to late at night. Attention, attention, attention. We're saying it in many different ways so we don't all bore each other to death. But it's the same thing. Really paying attention. Okay, now, the, this is on the level of the, the skillful use of the body. I'm not talking now about um, attachment and craving and suffering, but I will in a moment. Just how to use the body correctly, how to make the most use of this uh, beautiful instrument that we have. And as you begin to pay attention to these signals, more and more it becomes possible for us to re-educate ourselves and to change, to live our understanding. Understanding that comes out of experience, experience that is absorbed. The truth of the experience is absorbed. It's not merely cerebral. If it's cerebral, you have a good rap at the end of it. And you can pass the rap on to someone else. But there isn't necessarily any transformation. Okay. Other things that you learn while you're even at this first bite. This is something I learned when I first did this meditation. I was chewing on something and it was quite delicious and I had just begun to chew on it and already my arm was reaching for more of what I already had. It took me a while to see that and that that was telling me a lot, not just about that instant, but just about how I was living my life. In other words, lurching forward into the future, not fully appreciating or enjoying what I already had. Right now, perfect, happy. But in the meantime, the mind is programmed to take off for some future. Obviously, what you don't have, some fantasy or some imagining, must be better than what we have now. Certainly, wherever we are, there must be a better place to be. Whatever we're eating, there must be better food somewhere. There must be a better relationship somewhere. This couldn't be it. There must be a better meditation center than IMS. And I'm sure a better Dharma talk 
going on somewhere else. <laughs> but in the meantime, that's what we have in our mouth, is that food. Other things that I learned, I saw that I was bent over, kind of, uh, I suppose, pig style, you know, at the trough. And while I was eating, I was quite close to the food. That didn't bother me. I didn't even notice. What I started to notice by doing this over a period of time was that all the organs in my body were scrunched up because I was bent over and they were screaming out that they wanted some room. Now, a simple thing, you just straighten up. In other words, you, perhaps you bend down to, to get the food, and then you straighten up, and as you straighten up, the organs are relieved. They say, thank you, because they have their proper place now. I mean, there's some plan, you know? We didn't make this up. It's, there's some plan to the way the body is laid out. Years later, I read it in a book. In other words, about the relationship of posture to eating. Now, I don't want to belabor all this, mainly because the specific findings aren't really as important as uh, encouraging you to begin to look. And as you begin to look, uh, to inquire, to learn. And that's what makes this, this path so exciting, is that it's fresh. But it also takes a lot of energy and initiative. You have to do it. Okay. Let me finish the physical part of the meal and then explore a few other implications of it. So some of you are having uh, a difficult time with food. I mean, I think most of us do, one way or another. It's a rare person who's very balanced with food or money or sex or other energies in the world. It's rare, it seems. Okay, so you keep eating and you keep Uh, experiencing the sensations and also staying sensitive to the mind. At a certain point, uh, we come up against a question. And the question is, should I finish eating? Um, Is this the end of the meal here? Or should I go back for seconds, let's say? At that point, the information is usually present in the body. The body is telling you that it's had enough or that it could take some more. Very often the tongue is saying it wants more. And you might get into a kind of civil war. What happens at this point is perhaps you over one or the other wins out by force of will. But what I'd suggest is you pause at that moment, get very still, and allow that civil war to rage. Hear the very perhaps clear message from the stomach that it's enough, it's had enough. And hear the mind inventing all kinds of reasons or strong stirrings uh, which overpower this intelligence, this perhaps a weak voice of intelligence saying it's the end of the meal. Let it happen. I'm not telling you to, to, to not overeat or what to eat, but more if you stay alert, you'll begin to learn what it's about for you because it's different for each one of us. And then, you know, decide whether to go back for more or not. Okay. The the eating meditation doesn't end with the actual eating of a meal. Because if you remain attentive, let's say for a few hours, and really it goes even beyond that, there, you can sometimes begin to notice the effect of food that you had the day before. You can feel it the next day. 
a certain stiffness, drowsiness, heaviness, or lightness, energy, alertness. But right now, let's limit it to a more something that's more uh, within our grasp, which, within, which is within the next few hours. It's not that you have to be, uh, devote special attention to it, but just stay slightly alert to how you're feeling. Now, you've been getting these sensations in the body, the stirrings, pressure, etc., some of which are harmonious, some not. Even at the end of the meal, perhaps there's a feeling of, of uh, well-being or a feeling of not well-being, a feeling of being sleepy or dull or irritable. If you can begin to make the connection experientially at the moment that it's happening, that when I eat this way, this is what happens. Or it's when I eat the following foods, certain qu- kinds of foods, and in a certain amount, uh, I get the following kind of consciousness. There's a dullness or an irritability or a laziness or there's a sharpness, an alertness, a lightness. You'll start to see that there's a very strong connection between what you eat, how much of it, and the kind of mind that comes out of that. When the practice gets extraordinarily deep, I think it can go beyond this. I think the alertness can be beyond the body. But at this point, it's still very much of an influence for most of us. Okay, now here is uh, a point that uh, at times I have a difficulty conveying and I, I, I feel that it's extraordinarily important. So I'm, I'm going to do my best, but really stay with me, try. Because personally, I found it to be the key in all of this, for me anyway, in whatever little progress I've made with learning how to eat, especially in relationship to this practice. Let's say you begin to see that certain foods have certain consequences in terms of consciousness. You feel better, you feel alert. At that point, do you value that? In other words, do you value that quality of mind that's fresh and alert, that's clear, that's still? I mean, all the, the words that are used in meditative circles that all of us talk about, that you read about in books. When it comes to us, there's no question we're happy. We're happy that it visits us, let's say, in a, in a sitting. Suddenly the mind feels serene. We're grateful. It's wonderful. We want it to go on forever. Now, many of the things that we do in life determine that, how we live. And eating is another one. Now, if you can understand the connection between food and consciousness, and also if and when you come to truly value, let's just call it clear mind for the, mo- for the moment, clear mind, to see that perhaps it's the, uh, let's say, let's say a, an extraordinarily high value or maybe the highest. I don't mean it as, a, as an ideology or that you, maybe you agree with me intellectually. I mean that you've experienced clarity of mind and see the quality of life that comes along with that and you've seen dullness of mind and you've seen what follows from that, namely suffering, lack of fulfillment, and at a certain point, it starts to, you start to understand what we're doing here. But if I understand, I mean deeply understand it. At that point, a shift can take place in our life. Whereas before, perhaps we're trying to, in terms of not only here but outside, trying to fit our life around, try to kind of sneak meditation in, around our schedule. At that point, you start reorganizing your life to protect that. 
do you see the difference? In the first instance, you know there's some value in meditation. We've come here, we read these books, etc. But somehow there isn't this wholehearted uh, living on behalf of that value. It doesn't, it's not a, a, a clear um, expression of how much we value that. And so the rest of our life, or a lot of different parts of our life, are lagging behind. It's the old mind that isn't living in accordance with defending this value. Not at all. It's doing all kinds of things that if you are confronted with or say, hey, why are you doing that? You say, I don't know. I don't even enjoy it. When there's this deep appreciation for clarity of mind, and I'm using that simple term to, to cover a lot, more and more we do whatever is necessary to make that deeper, more full, until it becomes the way we live. It's uh, a radical point in the development of the practice. At least it has been for me, and I've seen it with a few other people. It, becomes, it simplifies life dramatically. In a sense, there's one very simple motive that's helping you every step along the way. And that is you understand how enormously beneficial it is to have a mind that is alert and willing to learn from life as life is being lived out. Okay, now, if that connection is made between the value of these clear mental states, and sometimes it's necessary for them to be juxtaposed, we have to do negative things enough times, get burned enough times. Oh, I see, I eat this way, and now I feel dull. You learn it, but then you don't learn it. We betray our understanding. We overeat again. Oh, I see. I overeat, now I feel dull. Again, we betray that understanding. And we keep overeating, feeling guilty, noticing it, and continuing to overeat. Or eat the wrong foods, or whatever. And on the other hand, we have these experiences which are positive. Moments of real clarity, and joy, and lightness, which also include intelligence, compassion, and a, a whole host of other human qualities the mind sometimes takes quite a while before it gets it and it starts to see, I understand when I do this, that, that causes that and I suffer. And when I do the other, my life is so much easier as, and, and it is for everyone around me as well. And something breaks. It becomes a lot easier. It no longer takes so much will or force to do these things, to practice. You want to do it. It becomes autonomous, an autonomous motive, rather than doing it because it's good for you, like cod liver oil or something like that. Okay, now I know um, some people have deep problems with food in terms of not only overeating, but um, a conflict in terms of eating food, retaining food. And these can be medical and psychological difficulties that uh, make it difficult for us in our life. And I'm not suggesting that Vipassana is kind of a cure for anything, because I don't know. I've seen it help some people. But what I am suggesting is that real understanding, which comes out of experience, can be very, very helpful. Maybe there are other things that you can use as well. Perhaps Weight Watchers and other groups like that know some good things. I don't know. But I've always found understanding to be extremely helpful. Again, it's not merely intellectual, because we all have that enough. Okay, now let's, we're, we're moving now more towards what you might call uh, Dharma issues. More, if you read a book on Buddhism. So far what I've been talking about has a lot to do with just how to be healthier, how the, for the body to, to not break down so much, 
for the mind to not be as uh, troubled by some of these problems, uh, have more energy, to be in a good mood, all of which, of course, extremely important. But other things can be learned from the eating meditation, particularly as it starts to become less problematic, as eating starts to become less problematic. There are issues which may not interest you now or may not interest any of us now, but at a certain point they become quite interesting. And they're the, the rather profound issues that are in this teaching, having to do with the cause of suffering, being craving. In other words, as uh, some of you know this formulation, we come in contact with some aspect of reality, whether it's a physical thing like a taste or an idea. If there's a pleasant feeling associated with that contact, we tend to want it. If we want it enough, there's a tendency to want to, to hold on to it, to get attached to it. Suffering, pain. Or we don't like it. We come in contact with aspects of reality that we don't like and we try to get rid of them, try to push them away, and that's suffering. You're going to be learning that basic process, that is, whatever it is you're eating, there's a feeling attached to it. It'll either be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Try it. See if it's true. If it's pleasant, there's going to be a likelihood, again, depending how pleasant, to want it, to want to have more of it. If it's unpleasant, you want to get rid of it. And if it's neutral, a tendency to space out. Uh, this yearning to hold on to these joys, I don't know if it's expressed in a, a relatively short retreat like this for only two weeks. On the three-month course, it's very common for people to stash food. It's kind of an ongoing joke here. Or some of the shelves look like uh, grocery stores or you know, supermarkets. And you'll see little pieces from each meal as if you want the meal to have immortality. You know, this meal should last forever. There's the, that cornbread, you know, and if I put some honey on it, it'll be almost as good as some cake I could have gotten in the outside world. And you'll see just incredible stockpiling uh, of these food, of these foodstuffs. And so what we're practicing is a kind of uh, pseudo-immortality, which of course is not very fulfilling ultimately, and it just perpetuates itself. There's something else that can be uh, practiced, which is to fully eat when it's time to eat and to be done with it. And here's, if you remember earlier, what I was suggesting is that if there is awareness, there can be enjoyment with non-attachment. That is, if you're eating something delicious and fully tasting it, fully chewing it, and completing the process, you don't need to stash it, or at least, let's say, not as much. The the, the eating wholeheartedly is fulfilling and then it's over. It's something that can be learned if we practice it. So that it allows for enjoyment. It allows for learning to enjoy something while you have it, and when it's over, fine. Then move to the next thing wholeheartedly, and then the next thing wholeheartedly. But what we do is, often, we don't do anything wholeheartedly, or only a few things, and those things have to carry the burden of our whole life, and so we overdo them. And then, and then it's circular. Then it collapses under its own weight. Food can't possibly compensate for all the deficiencies in our life. We have to look at those deficiencies. What is our true hunger? What are we really hungering for? Is it cornbread with honey on it? I doubt it. Or even something much more extravagant. You tell me. I think there's something much deeper that we hunger for. But we settle, we settle for food. 
Again, I enjoy food. I'm not trying to say don't enjoy the taste or just mush it around. In some of the one monastery that uh, I practiced in, we, we would mush all our food in one bowl. And I got a little tired of doing it, but I did it. And I asked, well, why do we do that? And so, well, that way we destroy the taste so you don't have to get attached to it. You know, it's not, you don't know what you're tasting, you know, rice or pickle or dessert or, you know, it's all... Now, I think that can be one way. That can be one way to neutralize this. Um, but another way is to let the food be just what it is, to enjoy it, and then to be through with it. So it's fully enjoy it, fully finish. And of course, the message is beyond food. If there's a loss, fully mourn. If you, lo- if you lose someone you love in your life, fully mourn. If you're playing tennis, fully play tennis. If you're sitting here, fully sit. When it comes time to leave, fully drive your car home. That's what we've been trying to say since Friday night in different ways. Another thing and can be learned, all of Dharma principles can be learned in eating. One that I'm working on now, and I'll just tell you about it, it's rather simple, and I find it quite... Uh, in addition to whatever the food may be, it's quite interesting. When I'm here, I'm able to have the time more often than, let's say, at home, and I do it at home too, um, to eat food and uh, attempt to really chew it and taste it. But what I'm doing now is studying impermanence in food. It's not that I've solved all the other problems that I've talked to you about, but roughly speaking, or relative to where I started, which was it was a big mess. In other words, I was 60 pounds heavier to serve some inspiration for some of you. And some of this helped me. So some of, it's not a big problem for me now. In other words, my, I overeat slightly, but it's not something that's pressing on my mind. So I can now begin to examine when I'm eating that even the most delicious taste has a beginning and an end. Also, so it is an awful taste. It has a beginning and an end, fortunately. Good taste, beginning and an end, all. <laughs> and so I'm, stu- I'm studying beginnings and endings as I eat. And it's quite a ball. It's really interesting. Now, that's a very uh, important contemplation in Vipassana because one of the main meanings of Vipassana meditation, or insight, is insight into impermanence, transience. That everything that appears disappears. Everything. And so you can study that on food. Now, here's some, uh, a fine point that I feel, if you're new at this, it may not make much sense to you. Those of us who've been studying this practice for a while, there isn't a whole lot of emphasis on the awareness in eating being used in the service of bodily know-how. In other words, how to keep the body reasonably healthy. What I'm talking about now, about the impermanence, that is taught. But it's, but, so that it's possible to, to be very attentive of your body of your eating in this practice, but from a rather specialized angle, the angle of learning, let's call it the dharmic or philosophical underpinnings of the teaching, which are profound and and very important. Grasping impermanence, we'll get into that one of these evenings here, is central in terms of freeing ourselves. But if the looking is, from my point of view, fragmented, that is, you're not, it isn't a whole person eating, and you're not examining, examining eating as a whole body activity, but rather from a certain angle. It's quite possible, I've seen this, it's quite possible to develop a high level of perception into the impermanence of the body and of eating without learning about the body and its needs. And as a result, the body uh, coming up with all kinds of uh, problems, sicknesses, 
rebellion. After all, it's saying that you're violating me. We're violating the body. A kind of sacred trust in a way. But you may not believe that, and that's all right. You don't have to. Let's drop down to a, a very practical level that I hope we can all relate to. If we violate the body, in other words, if, we, if we're not learning the laws of the body, at least at a, to a rudimentary level as part of our education, I'm not suggesting you become a food fattest or uh, uh, become a natural cure person or anything of that sort or macrobiotic. I'm not suggesting that. A little bit of care and attention can go a long way. If we don't do that, what tends to happen is the body is uh, low energy, gets sick often, let's say more than it, than, than it might be if there was just a little bit of attention given to it. I mean, so much of that is out of our control anyway, but to some degree we can help the process along. And when we're sick and low energy, do you really feel like practicing or sitting? Well, what's the quality of your sitting? It's a struggle. You just want to go to bed. You just want to go to a movie, anything. You don't want to sit for hours or do the walking meditation. So from any point of view, it seems to make some sense to learn how to eat, learn how to use that energy, whether it's common sense or if you have aspirations that go beyond that in terms of freedom or enlightenment. Okay. Are there any questions? Um, certain foods that are, tend to be addictive, like say chocolate, I tend to, I almost find it easier not to have any than to just have a little and know when to stop. Do you think through this process you can get it to the point where you can just enjoy a little bit of a, you know, something that's very addictive like that? I think that that's the point. I think you're really right on the, the target. Uh, it's much easier to fast than to eat intelligently. It's much easier to, to be silent, the way we have been for a few days, than for speech to be harmonious. When we leave here, blah, 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 you know, just... Um, but this can help us do that. It can help us do that. And fasting can help us learn how to eat correctly. So what you've put forward is, that's it. You know, it, it, you, I, don't, you know I don't want to get involved in whether you should eat chocolate or eliminate it. But you've, let's say you've decided that you're going to. Then can you reach a way of, of deriving pleasure? And I would say the degree to which there's awareness with the eating of the chocolate, I would say that there's a better chance of you're not needing as much chocolate. Some of that is because you're eating sensations. There's something, if you notice, there's something fulfilling about being aware of bodily sensations. It's a kind of food on a subtle level. You know, when you really feel the body at work, or when you really hear a thought, or when you really experience an emotion in the pra in awareness, it's very fulfilling. So you don't need, in a sense, a more gross kind of fulfillment. And by extension, of course, as the practice gets stronger, those same those kinds of cravings that are out of balance become less necessary, or they can become less necessary, because we perhaps we're getting something that's closer to our true food. Anyone else have any questions or comments? Sure. I, found, I find it quite easy to eat moderately and appropriately in this kind of setting, but in my ordinary life I find it very difficult. There's an incredible difference between the two. Um, Who makes that difference? Obviously, it's my, 
my, my level of attention to what's going on, it seems I don't have any willpower, no willpower, willpower or not, comes from my awareness of what you just described. I think you described it very, very well. If we're aware of the effects, and I've been overeating and eating um, incorrectly for many years, and finally about, oh, two, three months ago, my body just practically broke down. It was extraordinary. It's never happened to me before. I've always been very healthy. It showed me very clearly that that effect, I mean, that, what happened. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any hints on what to do when we go, when we go home, <laughs> when we get on the plane to go home and what they put in front of you, <laughs> is much of which I yeah. I don't have a, a recipe or technique except uh, while you're here, learn as much as you can. I was deep in that capacity of attention. See, when, I'm, when we use the word attention here, we don't mean just sort of a fixated gaze. It, it's, it has discernment in it. In other words, it's attention with the willingness to learn. And you have to do it. In other words, you have to live your understanding. And when you betray your understanding, find out why. In other words, don't club yourself over the head. Let's say you, you do beautifully here and you get on the plane and they put some, you know, what they put on in front of you and you just dive for it. And not only that, you ask for seconds. Okay. And then you... Now, some of it, it'd be good if you can learn while you're going, but often these things happen too quickly. It's over. And you've betrayed your understanding in a certain way. And then you feel guilty and... You know, we go through that cycle over and over again. But instead of doing that, um, sort of run the movie backwards. Track it down. In other words, what were you feeling on the airplane uh, just before the meal? Was it anxiety or fear or apprehension of where you're going? Or What was your mood? Is there something that precipitated, made you vulnerable to grab something from the outside as a comforter? And if there is, then go to that. See, where the practice is constantly pushing us towards the root of our problems. And perhaps the ultimate root is this self-cherishing, this incredible uh, part of the mind that is, as Corrado has pointed out to me, humorless and totally preoccupied with itself. Or is there's this little ego has absolutely no sense of humor. It just takes itself totally seriously all day long. I'd like to uh, comment on how absolutely on target you uh, you have been, and especially with this food thing. Uh, I noticed that, uh, as you said, having a meal and then feeling clear, as much as I, I'm betraying my, my knowledge, of course I like that. But when I go to a restaurant and I get a meal, and it's like a good meal, and I don't feel stopped, I feel like I've been are you Jewish, Greek, or Turkish, or any of those groups? <laughs> okay, same. Yeah. And, uh, and, and as you mentioned, now, see, I do that to relieve a feeling of anxiety. Because when I'm super stuffed and lying on the couch, I don't feel anxious. <laughs> I understand. Okay, but the essence, in other words, if you could stay with that, you have the whole practice right there for you. The anxiety, the way in which you're dealing with anxiety, the fact that that way doesn't work. 
Sure. identified your predicament. You know, for example, take the overeating thing. Um, I was brought up that um, at the end of the meal, particularly men, if you weren't, as you put it, you know, exactly, in other words, if you weren't bulging at the seams, that was a sense of well-being and often a certain sounds also had to come out to confirm <laughs> this sense of well-being. And this rewarded the cook. In other words, the cook felt good and you felt good as you toddled away from your chair or crawled away from your chair. So on one level, and perhaps this, uh, I try to trace this out with my parents and with relatives. I think it comes often, there's hunger in that background. People have known actual hunger, which begets a pattern that is no longer functional. In the United States, it's not necessary. We're n most of us have food, adequate food. But so there's a psychological well-being, and the body pays for it. Okay, now... The whole point of spiritual practice is suggesting that the ways in which we've been trying to get fulfillment don't work. We're never going to get it from a meal. I mean, there's some fulfillment. You can enjoy a meal, but there's no ultimate, ultimate fulfillment in a meal, obviously. And yet we're trying to get it, so we're not going towards where it may be possible. And that's what all the spiritual traditions are about. Okay, now, some of them set up an opposition where it makes, because, it's, because so often... We, we don't know how to use the energy of food, of sex, of money. So we have to just stop it, cut it off, uh, regulate how we eat, become celibate, not handle money. And that's one solution to the problem. Or simplify it and keep those stressors out. Because we know if they're let in, we're vulnerable and we'll just fall apart. So we just we regulate it. We put, build a fence around ourselves. And that's one strategy. It's often the strategy used in monastic situations. It can be quite useful. But most of us are not going to be taking that path, so we need a different path. We're in the world. We do eat. We have money, sex, etc. So we have to really learn how to use those energies. And then we get caught back and forth in, in the way you're describing, in the way all of us are. The foods that I try to cut myself off of, I can't imagine being good for me sugar. Mm -hmm. Okay, see, I'm not saying eliminate sugar. It's for each person to decide how to eat. This is not some kind of food moralism, you know, or natural health puritanism. You know, but it's, it's really, it should be on your terms. Or is that you've seen that this doesn't work for you, and so you put an end to it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.